I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemian podcast. So today we're going to talk about, first time on the show, a Chinese alchemist called Ge Hong. And I hope I don't butcher this one too bad. We, we did have a uh, Chinese-speaking expert here in the office. So Ge Hong lived from 283 to 343, and his courtesy name was Zhichuan. And he was a minor southern official during the Jin dynasty of China, which that dynasty was from 263 to 420. And it's best known for his interest in Taoism, alchemy, and techniques of longevity. So maybe not quite the elixir of life and living forever, but but clearly, you know, long life, let's say. So we'll obviously, because we're the history of alchemy, we'll focus on more the religious and esoteric writings that he did. But he wrote on tons of other stuff, basically everything. Now, the thing is that not all of it has been translated to English yet. So if if you speak Chinese, you might actually know more about his general works than you could possibly know if you only speak English. So it's, I think that's interesting. And in particular, he wrote two volumes of essays and alchemical writings totaling 70 chapters, collectively entitled Baoposi, or The Master Who Embraces Simplicity. And then the Nei Pian, which is the inner chapters, volume of the Baoposi, Ge vigorously defends the kind of um, this attainability of divine transcendence. Um, kind of immortality and also through alchemy, right? So, um, and then the outer chapters, the the Waipian, are more about social and literary criticism, which we're not going to get into so much of of those. But yeah, it was kind of a tome of a book, and writing about all kinds of stuff. We want to talk a little bit more about uh, his background. We know his father Gieti uh, served in various civil and military positions, and was eventually appointed governor of the Kwaji Prefecture. Uh, that would be in the Wu Kingdom. And at this time in Chinese history, if I'm not mistaken, bureaucracy was in full full effect. <laughs> Pretty much what we see in bureaucracy today paled in comparison to this to this era. Uh, but when Qin, uh, when Jin took over, uh, he was eventually rewarded with promotion, and he died while in office, serving as the governor of Shaoling in a modern Hunan province, and uh, it was an area relatively modest size. Uh, Ge was born uh, in 283 in Zhurong, uh, just three years after Jin, uh, after Yin conquest of Wu. He was the youngest of three sons. By his own account, Ge uh, possessed a serious demeanor as a child. Uh, he was really uh, a focused young man, declining to, to play with other children so he could participate in activities such as chess and gambling or cockfighting as a kid. Uh, you know, that's always a fun time to, you know pit animals against each other to fight to the death. Um, I do all three at the same time, personally. Who knows? He was equally equally uninterested in serious study. So he was a focused kid, but just not in the classical way of learning. Uh, Gay was only 12 years old when his father died in the year 295, 
uh, in an incident that seemed to have inflicted some hardship on his family. So he probably had to take over a lot of the fatherly roles as, as, a, as a son of the family. He states that he personally engaged in plowing and planting and suffered from the cold and the hunger in those days in China. The destruction of his father's library by soldiers due to civil strife worsened Gay's plight, and in one colorful passage from his postface, he was uh, described at how he used his meager income uh, from, from chopping firewood to underwrite his education. So he was really kind of a self-made man at the, from a very young age. The poverty uh, could be an exaggeration, though, but as, as most uh, heroic stories start off, uh, they have to come from uh, meager or humble backgrounds uh, in a lot of ways to overcome their obstacles. It wouldn't be a good story if it didn't, yeah. Yeah, so I, th- I think it plays right into what it needs to be. Yeah, so he began his study of the, the, the canon of texts, the kind of the Chinese uh, classics, gen- generally associated with Ru Jia, often translated simple as Confucianism. So there you, that, there you sure. go. Um, so, so he claims in, in his own kind of autobiography that he began to read the classics such as Ji Jing, the, the Book of Odes at 15, without a tutor, and he could recite from memory those books and kind of grasp their their essential meaning, you know. And his extensive reading approached 10,000 chapters, in quotes, which, you know, a number is, yeah, it's hard to take that literally, but, you know, it just means that it was a huge scope of his education. And like it, like in Taoist texts, if they say 10,000 things, it's just a vast amount of things. Uh, kind of like saying in, he had infinite books. You know, you know, Travis. Looking He's at part this, of this, this, this was just in his his really his youth area when he became a teenager. Uh, when he turned fourteen, he entered into the tutelage of the Jinyin, uh, an accomplished cha- classical scholar who had turned to the esoteric studies later in life. So this is where enters the alchemy aspect, I believe, uh, and and that kind of b- belief system. According to to Gay's lengthy and colorful description of his teacher, Jin was. Um, uh, was over 80 years old, but still looked remarkably um, young and, and vibrant. Uh, he was a master of the so-called five classics who continued to teach Leji, the book of rites, or the Shu, which means documents. Uh, he was a teacher of the esoteric arts of longevity, divination, astrology, and was even an accomplished musician. So you can see that this kind of brought, brought in a whole new level of learning for Jie. Yeah, sure. And to jump right into alchemy... Uh, Zheng Yin's instruction in the esoteric arts, so they emphasized the manufacture of the gold elixir, or or Jin Dan. But in this case, um, it's probably meant that the only truly significant, uh, it's the only truly significant means to achieve transcendence. So gold elixir, we've mentioned many times that this could be the philosopher's stone, but in this case, it's probably more like the elixir of life, or in this case, achieve transcendence. So it actually could be a very spiritual meaning of the word. Um, his influence is reflected in portions of, of Hong's writings that endorse alchemy, but are... Now, this is kind of interesting because it's critical of dietary regimens like herbs and other popular methods methods of longevity. You know, think Chinese medicine. So you want to live to be 120? I don't know. I don't want to, you know, belittle Chinese medicine, but... Um, some of the remedies are, are kind of strange and, and far-fetched to a, a Western sensibility. So he actually kind of talked these down and said, if you really want to live long, you've got to find it through the means of alchemy, which is interesting. The process of learning alchemical recipes and receiving scriptures combined rituals, oral instruction, and textual transmissions. 
it really was a combination of different inputs uh, that a person would have to kind of go through before they really kind of grasp the idea. Gay states that his master carefully limited access to these texts among, among his more than 50 di uh, disciples. He was only permitted to copy out a few, uh, but lists the titles of many more of his own writings. Indeed, Gay's inner chapters, quote-unquote, is remarkable for its extensive bibliography of alchemical scriptures, most of which exists only in fragments today. Mm -hmm. So I, I, when I'm seeing this, Travis, I'm seeing this I guy. I thought that was here. interesting, yeah. Yeah, I'm seeing this guy. He's, he's, he's putting a funnel to information because no one can handle a lot of this information. He wants to give it to the right person. Um, when you he, look at – He's as awesome a monopolist as, of China. It, it, very much so. I think he's basically any kind of, of maestro when it comes to – uh, fencing, when it comes to other uh, chess play, when it comes to somebody is um, giving tutelage to somebody else, to some of these classical uh, art forms or sports disciplines, you don't give everybody all the tools they need right off the bat. You have to work at it, and you have to see if the if uh, if the person can handle well, all this or information. That one, that way, no one can surpass the master. Well, that true. Yeah. yeah, that's also he's probably looking out for himself as well here. So only uh, to, to Gay did Zhen Yin uh, transmit texts such as. The San Juan Niwin, uh, which means esoteric writings of the three sovereigns, which Yen uh, considered to be some among the most important alchemical scriptures. Gay also received three scriptures from the Grand Purity, which is uh, known in Chinese as uh, Taiking, a uh, tradition that uh, originated from northern China, along with the accompanying esoteric or oral instruction. All these texts were relatively unknown south of the Yenzi River, and their transmission to Gay might have been regarded as a rare event. That, that owned something to Zhen Yin's um, close relationship to the Gay family. Zhen Yin was a pupil of Gay's granduncle, Gay Huan, um, who, who was in turn the pupil of the well-known Han Fanqi, which is an occultist, by the name of Zuo Si. Gay claims that these three texts were revealed through the divine revelation of Zuo Si, who later f uh, fled south to escape the chaos that followed the collapse of the Han dynasty. And then he had a career as an official in the military. So he's not done yet. He's, he's far from done, although he is almost done, actually. Uh, <laughs> he remained in the south, living as a recluse on Mount Luofu, which th he's kind of famous for this, too. And for the next eight years before returning to his native Jurong around 314, then he became an official again. So 14 years in seclusion, back to the, back to the military. But this time, shortly after emerging from, from his reclusive lifestyle and returning to his family, um, he received an appointment as clerk to the Prince of Langya, who his name was Sima Rui, and if you're interested, he, was, he lived from 276 to 322. Now, in 343, Hong died on Mount Luofu. So according to the, the, the story we have of him, his passing, and now this is in his official biography, um, it's, it's more hagiography than history. So supposedly, Ge sent a letter to Deng Yue, hinting at his approaching end. Deng rushed to Ge's home, but found him already dead. Now, weirdly enough, Ge's body was light and supple, as if he was alive, and his contemporaries all supposed that he had finally achieved this transcendence that he was after, right? Using that technique, the technique of Shi Jie, sometimes translated as corpse liberation. Uh, his biography, moreover, follows a tradition that Ge was 81 when he died, an important number in Taoist numerology. There you have numerology again, but it's not it's not it's alchemist, not the same. it's just right, Taoist. Yeah. Um, there's kind of, you know, modern scholars tend to think that the tradition is obviously, well, I don't, don't want to say obviously, but 
the consensus today is that it was false and that Gade died at the age of 60. So they really, they liked that number 81. So that was what the myth kind of has to say. Taking a look at the science uh, aspect of all this, the recent uh, surveys of this history of Taoism and Chinese have also emphasized Gade's importance in history of the science uh, foundations based on the detailed descriptions of alchemical processes, which are frequently studied in the terms of modern chemistry. A temple dedicated to Gaze stands in the hills north of West Lake Jiu in, in Hangzhou, Zhejiang province. According to the monks and nuns, nuns who lived in the temple, it was on the site that Gay wrote Bapuzi, the, the, the literature that we mentioned a few minutes ago, and eventually attained transcendence. Gay supposedly answered prayers from a Taoist worshiper with a healthy mind and body. Further south near Nigbo lies an, an eco-tourist destination that also claims to be the site of Gay's alleged transcendence. Visitors are rewarded with an exceptional hike through a narrow gorge of remarkable natural beauty. Well, that sounds kind of like a, a, a tourist catchphrase, yeah. doesn't it? Um, but uh, these, these contradictory claims, uh, together with the conflicting historical sources, reflect the complexity of Gay's legacy as a figure of continued religious, historical, and literary importance. Yeah. So they still care. They still care. Isn't that well, nice? this, this is true of most chi- Chinese historical uh, uh, matters, especially when it comes to uh, biographies of men of substance. Um, it doesn't matter how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years uh, the stories are recounted still to this day. Sure, yeah. Now the Baopuzi, this this famous work of, of literature here. So we have the 20 Neipian, the inner chapters, like you said, and they record like these kind of arcane techniques for achieving Xian, which is transcendence, like immortality in a sense, depending on how you translate it, I guess. These techniques span two types of Chinese alchemy that Tang Dynasty scholars later differentiated into Neidan, internal elixir or eternal alchemy, and Waidan, external elixir or external alchemy. And we, we touched on those words, but the word dan can be cinnabar, red, pellet, uh, like Chinese medicine pill meaning kind of the pill of immortality, the elixir of life, philosopher's stone, you know, that, you know the, the usual pizzazz. Um, Ge Hong details his, his researchers into the arts of transcendence and immortality. Internal alchemy concerns creating an immortal body, okay, which kind of through dietary, respiratory, sexual, whatever means, mental practices like, you know, meditation, visualization, that kind of thing. And then external or laboratory alchemy concerns compound elixirs. So you got things that you're doing your, to yourself and things that you're doing to elixirs, like from minerals and metals, that kind of thing. Writing fu, talismans or amulets, herbalism, exorcism, the whole shebang. You know, many scholars have pre- have praised the inner chapters that you mentioned, Travis. Uh, Yusuf Needham um, who also called Ge Hong's the greatest alchemist in Chinese history, quoted the following passage about medicines from different bi- biological categories. First and foremost, the interlocutor. Uh, life and death are pre- predetermined by fate, and their duration is normally fixed. Life is not something that any medicine can shorten or lengthen, which is kind of a, a different thought in al- yeah. alchemical process, isn't it? Um, a finger that has been cut off cannot be joined on again and expected to continue growing. Although it can. If you're a salamander, what? what? No, I was saying you can't be <laughs> joined again. And can, that's what we do nowadays. You reattach it. Well, yeah, we're, 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 we're talking on. hundreds of years later. <laughs> use, some, use some horse glue. Anyways, go ahead. Oh, I'm going to kill you later. <laughs> 
Blood from a wound, though swallowed, is of no benefit. Yeah, that's true. Right. And we've learned a lot over unless these years. You're in medical sciences. In, yeah. Unless you're a vampire. Unless you're a vampire. Therefore, it is inappropriate to approve of taking such non-human substances as pine or uh, thuya, which is uh, from the cypress tree, uh, to protect uh, the, the uh, brief span of life, the brevity of life. The other aspect is called ko. According to your argument, uh, a thing is beneficiary only if it belongs to the same category as that which it is treated. We, uh, if we followed your suggestion and mistrusted things of a different type, we would be obliged to crush flesh or smelt bone, prepare a medical uh, med a medicine for wounds, or try to fry skin or roast hair to treat baldness. Water and soil are not of the same substance as the various plants, yet the latter rely upon them for growth. The grains are not the same species as living men, yet living men need, to, need them in order to stay alive. Fat is not to be classed with fire, nor water with fish. Yet when there is no more fat in the fire, the fire dies. And when there is no more water, fish perish. So, so this kind of gives you an idea, Travis, that he's kind of taking a, you know, a different look at this so far. Yeah, you know, I think it's uh, uh, to, maybe philosophically to his, speaking, philosophically it's, it's very, very different. Yeah, it's interesting to because I'm sure that's kind of what Chinese medicine did at the time. Well, you associate this with that, so therefore, you know, obviously, uh, that almost yeah, it's almost like the four humors. You have too much of this, we got to take this away. You got, and then he's like, no, 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 there's no, it's not, it's not cause and effect like that. You know. Now the researcher Needham also um, evaluated this passage. Quote. Admittedly, there is much in the Pao Fo Su, which is wild, fanciful, and superstitious. But, but here we have a discussion scientifically as sound as anything in Aristotle, and very much superior to anything in the contemporary Occident that would be produced. Um, so when we say Occident, uh, we're talking about the, 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 the yeah. Sino Peninsula, or not the peninsula, but the, the entire Chinese uh, theater. Um, in addition to, to quoting early alchemist, alchemi, alchemical texts, the inner chapters describe Gehong's uh, laboratory experiments, which is actually very cool. Wu and Davis mentioned that the Bapuzi formula for making mo mo mosaic gold is, quote, a golden crystalline powder used as pigment, unquote, from Qiyan, a red crystal salt. This is produced from um, amethysts, uh, calcite crystals, and, and alum, and something called lime water. Mm -hmm. All right. So, In fact, that might actually be the, the earliest mention of mosaic gold, possibly. Um, so mosaic gold exists in kind of like flakes or leaflets, and they have the color and the luster of gold. It doesn't tarnish, and it's used at present, like today, it's, it's used for bronzing radiators, for instance, gilding picture frames, you know, similar kind of things, as Kohung describes the process, quote, tin sheets, each measuring six inches square by one and two-tenths inches thick, are covered with a one-tenth inch layer of a mud-like mixture of red salt and potash water or lime water. They are then heated in a sealed earthenware pot for 30 days with horse manure, probably with a smoldering fire of dried manure. All the tin becomes ash-like and interspersed with bean-like pieces, which are the yellow gold. So it's like, you know, kind of gold gold flakes, but it's not. But, you know, it's this, this kind of gold leafing you can put on stuff, more or less. Not to take too, too much of a, a diversion on this, but could you imagine that this was used five, six hundred years later in the Middle Ages 
by people to say, look, I just made gold. Oh, yeah, and Some sure. of the peers in Western Europe would have, would have, would have uh, been like, look, this, I've actually found out what this is. Yep, there you go. Yeah, there, are, there you have it. Um, the, the large portion of the metallic tin is converted into some ash-like compound or possibly into some uh, the ash-like allotropic modification, which is, you know, gray tin. Um, a small portion of the tin is converted into bean-sized aggregates of flaky stannic sulfide. The yield is poor, for the author says that 20 ounces of gold are obtained from every 20 pounds of tin used. So it's not exactly economical, but uh, hey, if you're after if you, gold... If you have more tin... There you go. Rock you on. Make right. some gold. Um, so the author also adds, it seems likely that Kohong was personally experienced in the chemistry of tin, for the Chinese say that he was the first to make tin foil, which is awesome, and he made magic or spirit money out of it. So he gave people aluminum, well, tin foil, and say, here, here you go. It's a metal paper. Wow. For centuries, traditional scholars have referred the the Baopuzi as a canonical Taoist scripture. Um, now, recent scholars kind of think about it a little bit differently. So it's not a you know canonical Taoist scripture. But the traditional scholarship viewed the Baopuzi, especially the inner chapters, as a primary textual source for the Chinese Waidan, this external alchemy, like we said. And it's probably the widest known and highest regarded of the ancient Chinese treatises on alchemy. That's why we wanted to uh, bring you this treat here tonight. Uh, it has been preserved for us as part of the Taoist canon, um, which obviously we've heard that maybe it's not part of the canon, but it, sh- it, it basically shows that this art has really existed for five or six centuries of practice. So it's really kind of come in, come into its own. And, it, you know, it has its traditional heroes. It, you know, it's like we said, it's it's a vast collection of literature in, in one way. And the technique and philosophy are now clearly fixed. So this is kind of the culmination of these six centuries of previous works. And which reminds me of Aristotle. It reminds me of Z- Z- Zazimos and, and those kind of guys. Uh, so basically, the author doesn't use this esoteric language that is probably used in previous Chinese alchemy. So he really, you know, breaks it down black on white and tells you how to do it, which is pretty interesting. Well, you can imagine that there's probably a great deal of symbolism here, especially when we talk about uh, uh, the Baopuzi. Uh, but, you know, he uses a certain number of secret terms such as metal lord and river chariot, uh, both of which uh, mean lead. Uh, and for the Virgin of the River, which means Mercury. Uh, but, but his attitude was that of a, of a very educated layman explaining claims to which a narrow-minded orthodoxy had, to, had earlier dismissed them with contempt. Uh, I bet you, this sounds pretty much familiar to most of our audience when we're talking about this because uh, that was kind of the life most like those, of alchemy. Those uh, stubborn folks. That yeah, just... <laughs> that most alchemists had to live through. Uh, Gay Hong's quotes his teacher, Zhen uh, Yin, explaining that poverty forces... Daoashi, which is Taoist perfect, uh, pract- practitioners seeking Zion techniques uh, to engage in this, the difficulties and dangers of alchemy. Yeah, okay. So another, another quote by Wu and Davis is, um, so then I asked further, why should we not eat the gold and silver which are already in existence instead of taking the trouble to make them? That's a good question. What are made will not be real gold and silver, but just make-believes. That's interesting that they made the differentiation. Cheng Chun, in reply, the gold and silver which are found in the world are suitable for the purpose, but Dao Shi are all poor. Witness the adage that Hsien are never stout and 
Tao Shi never rich. Tao Shi usually go in groups of five or ten, counting the teacher and his disciples. Poor as they are, how can they be expected to get the necessary gold and silver? Right? Makes sense. you got to make your own. Furthermore, they cannot cover the great distances to gather the gold and silver which occur in nature. The only thing left for them to do is make the metals themselves. So there's a need for it, and because of the distance and the, the trouble it takes to, to extract it from the earth, it's just better to have the secret knowledge to make it yourself. Yep, and uh, I hope you enjoyed that episode. We've finally broken ground on a Chinese alchemist. Well, I, I think it was necessary. We've been, we've been pretty much around the world so well, far, Well, we? the problem is we haven't gone into Indian alchemy yet, and which is also a, a substantial kind of field of study. And the reason I haven't done Chinese or Indian alchemists before now is it's a totally different system. So Egyptian, uh, Middle Eastern, like Persian, Arabic, and medieval European is the same thing. It all comes from Aristotle. Um, so this is a this is something that I do not understand. I do not understand um, why they believed or if they believed that light could be turned into gold. Because here it clearly says that you know they make the they differentiate saying that this is fake gold, right? So it is for medicinal purposes. There's clearly a spiritual aspect to it. So if I had to remake my diagram on my webpage for Chinese alchemists, it might be a little bit different. So um, I don't understand the full system yet. I'll, I'll be honest with the listeners. And for Indian alchemy, even less. So um, we may or may not do an episode on Chinese alchemy and Indian alchemy in general. I think we should. But uh, it'll be a while because I have to do the reading on it first. Well, Travis, know. you know, looking at this, we're, we're talking about the differences. What are some some of the commonalities to end the show tonight? What are some of the commonalities that you see with it? the human the human uh, strife trying to get to uh, another level of consciousness, like in Taoism, well, yeah, or, that, or trying to get wealth? What are, that what are that we is what's here? interesting is that this happened almost in parallel. So Zazamos was almost a contemporary of this guy, that, which is fascinating, and but they clearly did not know each Zazamos other. Zazamos of Panopolis. Yep. Right. And. Uh, they clearly didn't know each other, and they were worlds apart. Um, and th- but this has a lot in in common, superficially at least, with medical alchemy of the Middle East, like the you know the Persian and and uh, Al Jabir and and those folks. So it's really interesting to see that they were after prolonging life and after you know kind of healthy living um, by alchemical means. So either through medicine or um, there's a spiritual aspect of it, same as Neoplatonism. So what's interesting is that obviously the idea popped up independently of each other because it's at the same time worlds apart. So, you know, clearly one couldn't have influenced the other. So I just, I thought that was really interesting that, that there is this, not identical, but superficially similar tradition on the other end of, of the continent, basically. And uh, Indian alchemy... Yeah, I, I would love to examine that too because there are clearly some similarities there too. So we're going to kind of be all-inclusive and, and cover alchemy as a whole. Then obviously we got to look at the other traditions that are out there. Um, but like I said, i got to do my reading first. So, But yeah, it well, is So we'll get back with you actually. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So thanks, thanks for listening. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page or Twitter. 
at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast, all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on Bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy Podcast, thank you for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.